good to be reminded that all glory goes to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit uh, in our salvation. We're, we're doing a series that um, is, we're, we're sort of getting to the end of our Protestant transformation series and, uh, and what we've been covering, uh, as we'll see in, a, in just a minute, uh, has a lot to do with God's activity to save us. We're not, we're not forgetting our role as well. We have a responsibility in this and mysteriously God's sovereign and we're responsible but we really do lay our hope on what God has done for us rather than what we do for God. Uh, and that's what's really reassuring uh, to us because I know that uh, there's sort of this assumption that when we come to church, we're supposed to be uh, hopeful, uh, maybe even joyful. We smile when we come through those doors. People ask us, How's, how was your week? How you doing? Oh, good, good, good. Um, and we forget sometimes that church is a place where we can bring everything. Uh, the good stuff and the hard stuff, uh, the, the clean, beautiful, uh, good-looking stuff, and the, the hard-to-see, uh, not-so-good-looking things that are going on in our hearts or our minds. And so uh, that's why we, we pray, that's why we sing, even in church, uh, how long, O oh Lord, you know, and where are you, Lord, and uh, just even confessing our sins and our needs and our weaknesses, because holy cow, people, the gospel is for powerless people. The gospel is not for people who have their spiritual act together. The gospel is not for boasting about all of our spiritual trophies and awards when we get to heaven about, hey, look what I did. And as if God's going to pat us on the back and say, all right, well, you're one of the good people now. Come on in and we'll keep the bad people out. No, the, the reality is we all need grace. We all need forgiveness. Uh, and Jesus draws near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And that's what's so beautiful and so good about what we're going to see in Jude, uh, the very end of this very small letter at the end of your New Testament. It's right before Revelation. Go ahead and, and open to uh, Jude's epistle. Jude was the brother of Jesus. Uh, James and Jude are literally biological brothers of Jesus uh, through Mary and Joseph, and, uh, and he wrote this, uh, this letter uh, as an encouragement to the saints uh, to be on guard against um, the imposters and the wolves and to hold on, um, to keep ourselves in the love of God, but to remember ultimately uh, that it's God who keeps us. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses 17 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. But you must remember, beloved the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your revelation of 
your son to us, whom we place our faith and our hope and we rely on him and we pray that you would send your spirit now. Help us to keep ourselves in your love as we trust that you, in fact, are our keeper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So please be seated. Uh, You'll see two things going on here as we seek to affirm the fact that God is sovereign and that we are responsible. The Bible communicates that very clearly. Um, Both are true. Uh, They they appear to be sort of hard to reconcile uh, to us, but that's the mystery that we're embracing. And so uh, we're called to keep ourselves in the love of God, but we're going to start at the end of this passage in verse 24 where we're told that God is able to keep you. Uh, from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence. So let's talk about the the preservation of the saints before we get to the perseverance of the saints. A little bit of a distinction there. Um, If you have your Bibles open, you can just look up at the very first verse of these 27 verses in this this small, uh, 25 verses in this small epistle. So in the first verse, Jude introduces himself a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept, kept, kept by God uh, for Jesus Christ. He is able to keep us. Um, this is, uh, is very much a part of what we, what we are, are communicating, what our fathers and mothers in the faith were, were expressing when they laid out these five you know, fundamentals of the, the Reformation uh, sometimes you'll hear them described as the five points of Calvinism, even though Calvin himself didn't come up with these. But they are a response to those who were of the persuasion that really it's, it's completely up to us. Um, you know, they, they were making the, the mistake of putting all their chips on the human responsibility, you know, uh, black uh, corner or whatever, instead of embracing both truths. And so when we talk about these five points, we're talking about the fact that left to ourselves, we're dead in our sins and trespasses, and that God um, even loves his enemies. He loved us when we were his enemies, and he chose us and had mercy on us and gave us Jesus, the atoning sacrifice, um, who would die for our sins. And because he paid the price for our sins, uh, because of that atonement, you and I, through the Holy Spirit's work, are, are powerfully drawn by God's love. We're made new creations, we're born again, and we're given a new heart to respond to this gospel. And because of that, we will persevere. Uh, this is the promise that everybody who Jesus saves is saved completely. Um, and so all of this is God's work. We acknowledge that there's a mystery here too, a sacred mystery. Uh, we were joking about how we don't just believe in a tulip, T-U-L-I-P, but we believe in tulips, uh, that there's an S on the end of this and that there really is a, a healthy way to embrace God as a king who's sovereign and as a judge who holds us accountable for you know, what we're doing with this gospel that he reveals to us. But this last piece about the perseverance of the saints is really, really important because it sounds logical, all right? It's, um, it makes sense that if we were dead and he makes us alive and he forgives our sins and he makes us new creations through his spirit, that therefore, you know, yeah, of course, he's going to preserve us. We're going we're gonna to carry through to heaven. It sounds logical, but the real question is, uh, is it biblical? Is this what the Bible reveals to us? 
Well, I hope you're seeing in, in, in Jude that there's this language of how he will keep you um, and he will preserve us. But that's just uh, another echo of all kinds of places throughout the scriptures where we read like in Psalm 121, in seven verses, six times, you know, you're told that God is your keeper, uh, that the Lord will keep you. Uh, and the Psalm 121 concludes by saying the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Uh, Paul puts it this way uh, to the Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it out to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And that Jesus' love for us is perfect. It's uh, full. And when Paul explains to us in 1 Corinthians 13 the nature of love, and when he describes it as something that bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things and how love never fails, it never ends, what he's fundamentally doing is describing God's love. God's love isn't going to fail toward us. He's going to keep us and preserve us. And so, yes, this is biblical, that God's love for us is a love that keeps us, guards us, and preserves us. And when you look at verse 24, what it does for us is it keeps us from stumbling and it presents us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Um, this is a, one of the most remarkable truths in all of the gospel that, that when we stand before the Lord on that day, this day that no, no one can predict with certainty but that we know with certainty is coming, is a day when every human being Every creation of the creator will stand before him and give an account for our lives. And the promise of the gospel is that those who are in Christ will actually be found blameless. Paul describes it this way. In Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, as daughters, through Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable truth. It's what's embodied in, in the, the doctrine of justification, that we, we talk about how through Jesus and his work on the cross, he took what we deserve, our sins, and the judgment for our sins, he took that on himself as our, as our substitute, but as our representative, he puts on us his rightness, his righteousness, and that everybody who has faith that Jesus is my substitute, my representative, is justified because of that, just as if they'd never sinned. That's what, that's what accomplishes the status of being blameless before God. And later on in Ephesians, Paul elaborates on, on the beauty of that, and he talks about marriage, and he says, husbands, I want you to love your wives the, the way that Christ loved the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, and that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. When's the last time you felt splendiferous? When's the last time you, you looked in the mirror and thought of yourself as somebody who is without blemish? 
spot, without blemish. I am blameless and holy. It's not how we view ourselves. That's how God views us because of the work of Jesus, because of justification. And this is, this is what kind of gets us, um, uh, I want to go further down these rails. When, when C.S. Lewis, this is a quote I've read to you before because it so wonderfully summarizes what we're communicating. As he says, that it is written that we shall stand before him, we shall appear, shall be inspected. And the promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ to justify us, that some of us, that, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination and shall find approval, shall please God. Our, the history of the human race, people, is that we hide from God. And what, what, what is happening is that there's a way for us, instead of standing before him, and, and, and fearing condemnation, fear, feeling shame, you know, holding our heads down, knowing that we're guilty. Instead, the promise of the gospel is that on that day we're going to be approved. Now, some of you know exactly what it's like to be inspected. To stand before a superior and he's going to, or she's going to dress you down for your work, for, you know, your uh, accomplishment or lack thereof. And if you're a veteran, of course you know exactly what this is about. And you remember boot camp. You remember your drill sergeant coming in and inspecting you, your uniform, you know, your bunk, your barracks, etc. If maybe uh, if you were a military, you know, spouse, whatever, you've got to do those moves. You know what it's like, you know, when they come in and they're going to inspect your military housing and make sure it is white glove, spotless, clean before they release you. So that's that's the that's a imagine that kind of white glove inspection on your soul. What, what Jude is telling us is that he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his presence holy and blameless before him. I mean, that when we stand before him on judgment day, we're not going to be saying, you know, but, but Lord, what about this? And he's going to say, shh, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah, but remember when I did this? Shh, no, I don't want to hear about it. Blameless. And slowly we're going to kind of come to realize, wait a minute, I shouldn't be hanging my head. I can lift my head. And I'm not fearing. Why? Because the expression on his face is he's pleased with us. And this is where Lewis goes on. He says that we shall find approval. We shall please God to, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father in his son or daughter, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. So, you know, you and I all have the, a vague notion of heaven being a happy place. We, we look forward to, you know, some kind of celestial eternal bliss and that's right and good. That's biblical. Heaven is a happy place. But do you, do you know why you're going to be happy? Do you know the source of that joy, the foundation for it? Is it going to be because you finally get to play that, that cute little harp, you know, for an eternity? Is it because you finally sprout wings and float around bare-bottomed, you know, and cute and cuddly and cherub-like? I, I don't think so. It, 
it would, it would be realistic uh, to think, hey, you know, cloudy walks with loved ones who have gone before who I miss, and I'm looking forward to that, and that's going to be, it's going to be wonderful, right? Um, it's going to be beautiful. For all those who just wake up every day and, you know, when they get a daily dose of ugliness. It's going to be healing for those whose bodies uh, have just kind of gone crooked and sideways and live in perpetual pain. Uh, the promise of heaven is no more pain or death or crying or mourning, you know. I mean, and so, yeah, there's happiness there. But, folks, the happiness of heaven is not simply circumstantial. You know, you know this is true. You know that things can be great uh, at, at work or at school. Um, you know, you can have all your bills paid. You can have money in the bank and everything. But if things aren't good at home with your spouse, with your parents, with your kids, with your roommate, um, if things are sideways between you and your girlfriend or your boyfriend, you can be getting great grades, you can be killing it on the soccer field, but it just life just seems bitter. Because joy in life is fundamentally not about circumstances, it's about relationships. And I want you to think about the joy of heaven, of knowing that if God is pleased with me, if he is showing delight and joy in me, then that's what makes heaven a happy place. Everything else is just, you know, the icing on the cake of God being pleased with us. I remember when, um, when, I, was, when I turned 21, I was a senior at JMU, and, uh, and for my birthday, uh, Kathy and I were dating at the time, and she took me on this, uh, she sent me on a scavenger hunt all over JMU. It was a lot of fun. I'd never, nobody had ever done that for me before. It was really, really cool. And at the end of the scavenger hunt, um, I'm back at my room. Uh, I was still living on campus in Spotswood on the quad. And I get back to my room, and there's all these people. All my friends from uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship were there. And, you know, it was a surprise for me, and I'd never had that. And it was just, I didn't know what to do with it. You know, here's all these people who are just, they're just happy to see me, you know. And the joy of that, I want you to, I want you to think of heaven that way, that when you stand before the Lord... He's really, truly going to be happy to see you. And his delight is in you. And that's the eternal happiness that we have to look forward to. Everything else is just cake. You know, this is, this is the, the blessing that, uh, of God being delighted in us. And, and, you know, by the way, we don't have to just be happy in the future. Because if God is pleased with us in the future, that means that he's pleased with us now because of Jesus. And if he's pleased with us now, then we can be joyful about that now. And that can start to invade our, our dark places. That can start to push out the darkness. That can start to bring light to our souls. We can really start to experience more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love and joy and peace that will transcend your circumstances and transform your life. And that is a part of the blessings of being kept, kept by God. Well, the, the passage begins by us being told to keep ourselves in the love of God. Do you, do you see that? So there's two things going on here. We're, we're being told to keep ourselves in the love of God, and he is able to keep us. 
Um, let me begin by just talking about some of the problems in the Christian community, problems that have existed for 2,000 years and will continue to exist until Jesus comes back uh, to perfect his bride. But you see in verse 17 and following that there's going to be these, these scoffers uh, in the last time. Uh, they are following their own ungodly passions and they cause divisions, uh, but they're worldly people devoid of the spirit. How can they be causing divisions in the church unless they're in the church? And yet they're in the church, but they're not of the church. They don't really belong to the church, but they're, they're you know, uh, Jesus would describe them as uh, weeds among the wheat, uh, and that no, no church is, you know, 100% pure. Uh, and so what, Paul, what, what Jude is warning us against are those who are imposters, scoffers, who are following their un, own ungodly passions instead of following Jesus. Earlier in verse 4, look again um, for uh, you know, more of the description of, of kind of the threat toward uh, the church. Certain people crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this isn't unique to Jude. You, you see warnings like this. All over the New Testament, Jesus himself says, watch out, be on guard against false teaching, against you know, false teachers, and, uh, and those who are imposters. Paul tells Timothy, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Those who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, as, as verse 4 says. So, um, in our Protestant Transformation series, you've heard a lot about Martin Luther over the past few weeks. There was another German reformer who didn't live in the 16th century. He lived in the 20th century. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a German pastor and reformer, truly. Uh, incredible, uh, courageous follower of Jesus who died in a Nazi concentration camp because he was seeking to live faithfully as a disciple. And he stood up against Nazi oppression and he died for it. And he warned against what's called cheap grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, warning against those who pervert the grace of our God and its sensuality. The gospel of God's forgiveness is not an excuse to go on sinning. It's not an excuse to say, well, all right, I can just do whatever I want now. I've got the get-out-of-jail-free card. I've got my you know, eternal fire insurance. You know, Thank you, Jesus, so much. Now I'm just going to go live my own life. And Bonhoeffer warned against that. That's a, that's a perversion of the grace of our God into sensuality. That's, that's a departure from the faith. So how is it that God keeps us, but that you know, some seem to fall away? There's this expression in the Bible. Um, Jesus, Jesus told a parable about the, the kingdom of God, how the, the message is like seed that a, a sower scatters and some of it falls on the on the, um, the trail and the birds come and pick that up. Others fall on um, really shallow, rocky soil and others, other seed falls on uh, thorny soil. And the other seed, the, the final category, is fertile, deep, rich, good soil. And Jesus is explaining that that's a picture of the gospel as it you know, goes out and different people, different kinds of people receive it. Uh, and some seem like they're responding, but they're not. Um, you know, Jesus would describe those 
with the, the shallow or the rocky soil. He says that they have no root in themselves, but they endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, when things get hard as a disciple, immediately they fall away. They were never really disciples. They were fair weather friends of Jesus, but not truly those who love him. Uh, thorny soil is Jesus saying, these are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. There was never really a root there. Nothing lasting, just an imposter. Um, these are people uh, that are, sometimes they're even called out in the New Testament. Paul mentions a few. He says in 2 Timothy 4, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. You know, he's, he's left the, the group of disciples there. Uh, and uh, earlier, another passage that, where he writes to Timothy, he says, hold on to faith and a good conscience. Hold on to these things because by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So you've got like real people, Demas and Hymenaeus and Alexander, who appeared to be disciples of Jesus, but they did not keep themselves in the love of God. Instead, they made shipwreck of their faith, and they demonstrated, they proved through their lives and their actions that, no, their hearts were not fertile soil for the gospel, um, reaping you know, fruit, but instead their hearts were hard and stony and thorny. How do we, how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Hebrews 3 tells us to take care, brothers. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. The Bible doesn't mince words. God is sovereign. He keeps us, and we are responsible. We are responsible to not give in to the deceitfulness of sin. We are responsible to hold to our original confidence firm to the end, to hold on to Jesus, and to not make shipwreck of our faith. Jude tells us how to do that, what that looks like. How do we keep ourselves uh, in this love? Uh, he says, by building yourselves up in the faith. Do you see that? Uh, building yourselves up in the faith. How do you do that? Building yourselves up in the faith means believing. You know, it, this, is, this is the faith, and there's truths about this faith that we have to hold on to, and that means we have to know the Bible. You have to read this, make, make this a, a habit to get to know what God says. This is the faith that's been delivered to us. And if you're not reading this, you don't know it. And so to hold on to Jesus means, yeah, you want to read the Gospels and you also want to read the rest of the New Testament that explains the Gospels. And you want to know what's in the Old Testament because the Old Testament is giving you a picture um, and types and foreshadowings of who Jesus is because the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is the story of God's pursuit of his people to provide a, an atoning sacrifice to restore us, reconcile us, and lead us into an eternity of a joyful relationship with him. So if you're not keeping yourselves in the faith, then you're not going to be able to, to keep yourselves in the love of Jesus. And uh, 
Jude goes on to say, by praying in the Spirit and waiting for the mercy of Jesus, that we would persevere in the gospel, that we would persevere in prayer, that we would persevere in patience. And how do we do this? Well, we, we do this through a number of means, you know, reading the Bible, uh, praying, serving, worshiping, and all of those things kind of overlap and, and, and uh, are um, intensified when we come together corporately like this. So if, you're, if I'm getting your attention at all, if, if Jude is getting your attention, the Holy Spirit is saying, all right, I really um, am, am, am alerted to the fact that there is a caution here. There are very simple means of grace, they're called, to, to keep ourselves in the love of God. And if you don't do these things, then guess what? There's a very real danger that what's going to be exposed is the nature of the soil of your heart, and it's not good. So what, we, what we're given are these simple means, um, keeping ourselves in the faith and persevering in prayer and waiting for Jesus. And where all those things beautifully overlap is often in corporate worship. We're praying together, we're reading the word, we're encouraging one another and exhorting one another every day, and especially, you know, today as we, as we gather. And so as you think about church, uh, one of the things that, that we've noticed, um, we have a monthly pastor's lunch on Tuesdays, third Tuesday of the month, uh, at Church on the Hill, and a bunch of us get together and we pray for each other, and we pray for their, our churches, and we pray for our community, and um, it, it hasn't gone unnoticed that it used to be, uh, you know, even maybe 10 years ago, uh, you could point to the people who are really uh, committed and, and faithful in your church, and they were there, you know, three to four Sundays a month. Um, and now the, it, that, has, that has dwindled to where, you know, that the, the, the core of the church is really there about half of every, uh, every other week or something like that. Um, and, and so when you think about church attendance and the blessings of the word and prayer and these means of grace that come to us through the Holy Spirit as we gather for worship, I want you to think about something. There are lots of, there are lots of young Christians or immature Christians that go to church. But there are even more young or immature Christians that don't go to church at all or that you know, ignore the church. But I will tell you this, I've, I've really, it's, you're, you're hard-pressed, you're very hard-pressed to find the mature Christian who doesn't go to church. They're not found outside the church. And so if you want to grow as a disciple and if you want to keep yourselves in the love of God, take advantage of the means that God provides and find yourself here loving one another, following Jesus together, and persevering together. This is fundamental sanctification, this is what Peter describes when he says, be more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we continue in the faith? How do we keep ourselves? At the, at the very basis, under all the things that we've talked about, you know, the Bible and prayer and worship, etc. At the foundation of that is fundamentally our relationship with God. And on the one hand, you've got, um, back to the other 16th century reformer in Germany, Martin Luther, he said that, you know, at the end of the day, his very first um, thesis of the 95 Theses was that when our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, commanded everybody uh, to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, 
he willed that the entire life of the disciple be one of repentance. And so Martin Luther was protesting this idea that one can do penance and do some kind of work, some kind of holy work, and then you present that work to God, that penance to God, and then God forgives your sins. Martin Luther's saying, no, that's not what forgives our sins. Our works don't forgive our sins. Penance is bringing your works to God. Repentance, on the other hand, is bringing our sins to God. The end of the day, this is how we persevere, is we don't stop repenting. We don't stop believing. We don't stop bringing our sins to God. Yes, we are going to fall down and scrape our knees spiritually over and over again. Nobody here is perfect. Nobody here walks through those doors with a completely clean slate in and of yourself. God sees us as clean. He sees us as spotless and wrinkle and without wrinkle, but we know what we're bringing in here. And repentance means I'm bringing my sins to God. And I'm trusting Jesus to take them away. And I'm trusting him to renew me and renew my joy and renew the assurance that he loves me and he gave himself for me. That's the beauty of having this gospel continually in our ears. And if we remove ourselves from earshot, that's when our hearts get hard. So one thing that, one, one litmus test for how well we're doing, how well we're being reminded of the gospel and walking in repentance is verse 22 and 23. Because Jude says, hey, have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them out of the fire. One great tool for knowing, am I walking in the gospel? Am I living a life of repentance and faith or not? Is to see what is my attitude toward those who are struggling? What is my attitude toward those who doubt? What is my attitude toward those who are in sin? Do I look at them and do I judge them? And am I condescending and condemning to them? Or am I compassionate toward them? Reaching out toward them and Wooing them, calling them, come, come follow Jesus, come back into the fold, come on. Repent, believe again, and having mercy on those who doubt. Why? Because we're very much aware of the mercy that's been shown to us. We're not forgetting that I am fundamentally a recipient of God's mercy through Jesus. Our mistake is thinking that I've arrived on my own merits, I've got my own strength to be thankful for, and this is all about me, instead of remembering this is all about Jesus. Well, I said uh, earlier that, you know, we're, we started at the end because God is preserving us, but we're mindful that mysteriously God calls us to be responsible, and, you know, we have a part to play in this too. But, but look again at verse 24. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, etc., etc., Who's presenting who? Look at verse 24, and you see that that to him, that is Jesus, is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his Father. And so I want you to remember that, all right, we're going to stand before the Lord, and we're being held responsible, and we've got to keep ourselves in the love of God, and, and we have a responsibility. But do you know who else has a responsibility? Jesus. Because he came and and lived as a man among us and he was incarnate among us and he was subject to the law just like we were, he took upon himself an accountability before God to be the good shepherd. 
Uh, when, when our kids were little and we would have babysitters come, uh, we would tell them, look, uh, we, we're thankful you're here. We just want to keep it, uh, keep it light. We want to keep the, the, the threshold of success really, really low. And your job tonight, kind babysitter, is to keep our kids out of the emergency room. Thank you very much. And thankfully, you know, every one of our babysitters succeeded. They had a responsibility. They were going to be held accountable. We would come back and there would be a reckoning. Did you keep our kids out of the ER? Yes. Amen. Thank you. Do you know that Jesus takes upon himself an accountability? A responsibility to be our good shepherd. In Colossians 1, it says this, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh us by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You and I are not the only ones who are going to be judged on that day. We're not the only ones who are going to be held accountable on that day. Jesus is going to be held accountable on that day. He will present us, and, and, and then I want to ask you, on that day when he presents us, when he presents his work, when he demonstrates how responsible he has been with the charge that's given to him, do you think he's going to fail? Is he going to come up short? Is there going to be any incompetency in Jesus, any inconsistency, any ineptitude? He's a good shepherd. He's not like us. You and I, we're kind of looking forward to that day like we would look forward to eating lima beans. But Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. I shall lose none of all that he has given me. Do you hear that? Jesus will give an account as well. He has been given a responsibility to present us blameless before the throne, and he will not fail. Christ is our hope. Our trust is in him. Our faith is in him. Christianity is not for the smug and strong and self-reliant. Christianity is for those who are very much aware of our weaknesses, very much aware of our sins, who are being responsible to trust in the responsibility of another. God preserves us and we persevere because Jesus perseveres. Let me pray for us. Lord, our God, who is like you, who not only would be patient with and love his enemies, but would endear yourself to us so much that you would adopt us as sons and daughters, that you would give us your spirit, that you would give us an inheritance, that you would give us your smile, and that you would give us Jesus, who is our guarantee that we are safe as your sheep. Lord, would you keep us from presumption? Would you keep us from callousness and from uh, making shipwreck of our faith and remind us that indeed we are responsible to walk and live as your disciples, to take advantage of all the means that you have given to your church for us to grow and to, uh, to become more and more like Jesus. But Lord, let us not forget 
that ultimately our responsibility is to rest in the one who is truly perfectly responsible, who will be accountable on that day for all of his sheep, and who promises us that he will lose none. That is our hope and that is our joy. And so we exalt Jesus and we thank you for our security in him. Help us to worship him. Help us to follow him. Help us to follow our shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray.